May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Everybody likes an agreeable person, don't they? Oh, you know Sandy, isn't she the sweetest thing? She always has such nice things to say, you know, that sort of thing. Or you know Bill, isn't he the nicest guy? I mean, he'd give you the shirt off his back. What a great fellow this Bill is. I mean, they, people like an agreeable chap, don't they? A man, guy or girl who, who's nice and charitable and has kind things to say. Well, you've got to love that sort of person. I mean, you love them because, because they're... They're kind and good and fun to be around, but also perhaps because they're in short supply. I mean, not around here, of course. They're in short supply elsewhere. I mean, we're fully peopled with agreeable sorts, no question about that. Greatest people on the planet right here in Hudson. But, um, you know, not everywhere. Not all people are like our people, you know, in the planet. Everywhere there's, there's people who are not agreeable sorts. There are people out there who are disagreeable sorts, aren't there? People who, you know, got to be in their bonnet all the time about something. Well, you know, I was pulling into the Acme the other day, and don't you know this woman pulled right in the parking spot that I was going for? So I chased her down inside, and I gave her what for? I don't care if she was 90 and only had one leg and a patch over her eye. I let her know, you don't take my spot. You know, kind of, ooh. I was watching the news this morning, Okay. A retired economist professor, professor of economics, um, this retired economist, uh, in a disagreement with his neighbor over the bushes that separated their two properties. Apparently, the neighbor, a younger man in his 30s, 40s, you know, was out and trimming the, the, the shrubbery on his side of the fence, and, and the retired professor was angry about it, and they had been in this dispute back and forth. Those aren't your bushes. They're on my property. They're not your bushes. You know, back... So the, um, this goes on for a while, and the retired professor goes out there. He says, we're in an argument. I saw him reach for a gun, so I pulled out my revolver and shot him. Killed him! Only one of them had a gun, and it was the one who shot. The other had, had no weapon. If you take a revolver with you to argue about the bushes, I mean, you have taken this intensity way beyond a rational level. And there are all sorts of people like that out there. There are all sorts of people who get in that sort of disagreeable, angry, self-entitled, you know, even, you know, yours truly. I'm at a ball game yesterday, okay? At a ball game with great time. We're leaving the ball game, and it was packed. It was a sold-out baseball game. They fireworks at the, at the Indians after the game. So we go and sold-out game. And um, the traffic. You would not believe how long it took me to drive around the block just to get to the interstate. And I'm I can't believe this traffic, you know. You ever hear people getting a disagreeable sort and you just want to say to them, Hey, stop. Stop your whining. You know, isn't it enough that you have food and shelter and that there are police and firemen and paramedics waiting 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, lest something bad befall you. Isn't that enough? Isn't it enough that you have schools and churches and libraries and, and clean water to drink? I mean, isn't that enough? Do you ever feel like saying that to some people? I mean, not to yourself, but to some people. I mean, do you, do you ever feel like that message needs to be communicated? Because I do. 
And I feel like the person I need to communicate the most to is this guy right here. You know, that, that sometimes I whine about things. It's easy to overlook the fun of a pity party, isn't it? I mean, they really are quite fun to have. Um, you, you don't need party favors. Uh, you can get by without snacks. Um, you, you don't need drinks or desserts. You don't even need to invite anybody. I mean, the more miserable the pity party, the better it is, right? You can really start loading it on pretty heavy. These times when we want to crawl back in bed and pull the shades and I'm not going to deal with anything. And I don't know what it is that gets you there. I mean, you know, maybe business isn't flourishing quite the way you want. Maybe your husband didn't notice your new hairdo. Um, Maybe he hasn't said a kind word in a while. Maybe your wife has been too busy too long or... The kids are getting in trouble at school or the grandkids are in trouble with whatever. I don't know what it is that kind of gets you there and, and you, you feel like, oh, you know, I, I really, I really want to throw this party for myself. Um, but we all get there, don't we? Sometimes it's serious. I mean, sometimes there are reasons why we really feel this way. I mean, sometimes you might uh, you know, find yourself in a physician's office and she says something like surgery. Or you're not allowed to drive any longer. Or cancer. And those are times where you get real serious. And, and, and it's not just a, a trite little thing to say you're having a pity party, but it's, it's a real time of, of self-evaluation and, and a real time of depression. Maybe a spouse says divorce or a boss says fired or a client says we're pulling our business. And, and it's a serious issue. It weighs heavy upon your minds, and it's not just a trite little thing. There are times in life where where we can be hit so hard by something that it's a miracle that we're standing at all. Well, there's real difficulty and real pain. And the human psyche wasn't really built to handle such pain. And so it sort of collapses for a while. That could really happen. And many of you know a time when it did. But here's the wonder of it all is that, is that we do kind of bounce back and, 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 and we do sort of get restored. And, and usually what doesn't kill us does, in fact, make us stronger. Now, you may not know this about preachers, but we preachers are fierce party goers when it comes to pity parties. I mean, we really know how to throw it up. You know, we, we can do this. Uh, sometimes it is, um, you know, narcissistic navel gazing, I'll have to admit. Sometimes it is. But not always. Sometimes there are real hardships. Sometimes life isn't always puppy dogs and rainbows when you're uh, in the ministry of the Almighty. A lot of people have known this. I mean, there have been people who have found themselves, you know, at the wrong end of an axe. Or they're at a barbecue and they're on the menu. Or there's a, a rope and they're dangling from the end of it. All for having served God. People like Thomas Cramner and Jan Hus. Polycarp, St. Ignatius, Joan of Arc, Hugh Latimer, Jim Elliott, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on and on and on. People who have not just suffered hardship, but actually had to give their very lives for, for being in ministry, being in the service of God. Men and women who realize that our culture often has a very short attention span and a very low tolerance for holiness. And it's difficult. It's difficult to be in ministry when you realize that. And one person who knew it all together well was the prophet Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah, Jeremiah's father was a priest. He grew up in a small town where only clergy lived. It was like a, a little town of priests, you know, and their families. And, and so I don't know what that neighborhood would be like, but um, I'm guessing it would be pretty strict, you know. And, and so Jeremiah's father's a priest. His, his father was in the service of the temple. A little distinction about the differences between priests and, and prophets in the ancient uh, Israel world, Israelite world. The priests were, um, they were men who, who, worshiped, or who served at the temple, but it wasn't a place where you would come and, and hear a sermon. They weren't preachers. They would rather be people who would receive a worshiper. So lay people would come in. And you remember at this time that they would offer animals for sacrifice. And so, you know, in walks Sue with her, her lamb at the end of a rope. You know, it's alive, you know. And she walks in to the temple and is greeted by a priest who inspects the animal to make sure that it is worthy of being offered as a sacrifice. The priest then instructs the worshiper on how to slay the animal. The worshiper actually does the hard work of of slaying the animal. And then the priest gathers up the blood and places it upon the altar. The priest also does work like lights incense and says, says prayers. But his job is mainly a sort of Quality control. <laughs> Make sure that the worshiper is performing their, their service, their duty to God in a way that's proper. The priest is a mediator then for the people to God. But a prophet was the exact opposite. The prophet was the one who brought the word of God to the people. Now, in, in Christian ministry, prophet and priest, the roles are, are, are combined into one office. And so right now, this is the prophetic ministry. And in a little while, there is the priestly ministry. And so we have both of these before us in, in a single person. But in the ancient world, those were two separate and distinct offices. Jeremiah has not been called to be a priest. He has been called to be a prophet. And he knew that the culture will tolerate priests. They always tolerate the priest. You know, he's kind of goofy. He's over there playing with his little toys, you know, but he dresses funny, but we can handle him. The priest is tolerated. The prophet is not. Jeremiah, I think, will say, call me to be a priest. I'm good with that. I'm fine with that job. But this job of being a prophet... I don't think... Do you know what Jeremiah says? You should read chapter 1 of the, of the book of the prophet Jeremiah when he's called to be a priest. Do you know what he says? He says, um, you know, Lord, I would love to do that. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I would love to do that someday. You know, someday... I'm really quite young right now. Um, sure, look me up in a little while. Let's say 10 or 12 years. Uh, you know, I still have um, I still have undergrad to do, and then there's grad school after that. You know, my hair is not sufficiently gray yet. I, I, have, I have things to do. Look me up in a little while. Because right now I'm just a kid. And somehow the Lord doesn't take our excuses, and he didn't take Jeremiah's either. He says, you know, don't say that. You'll go wherever I send you, and you'll say whatever I tell you to say. And Jeremiah knew that this was an awful job. He does not want this job. He knows he lives in a culture that is entirely rebellious against God. And that his message is going to be a singular one. Repent or be destroyed. That's what he gets. That's his one sermon. God gives him one sermon to preach. Here's your one sermon. Now go do this. And Jeremiah says, I don't want to do this. 
Do you know how the people will react when they hear me preaching this week after week after week? They're going to hate me. They might even kill me. They have a long history of doing stuff like that. Did you hear the text? Did you hear Jeremiah's bluesy song? He finally took the job. He did what God said to do. He goes out. He serves as the role of a a prophet. He preaches his one sermon over and over and over again. And here's what he says. Oh, Lord, you've deceived me and I was deceived. You're stronger than I and you've prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. I told you. This is exactly what was going to happen. You gave me this job. I told you what would happen. I wasn't even a prophet then. And look, it's exactly what happened. They hate me. They want to kill me. They're plotting against me every single day. When I shout violence and destruction, the very sermon you gave me to do, the word of the Lord comes from me as a reproach and a derision all the day long. Now, I want you to just take a moment and think about something. Let's just suppose for a moment that it was you, you know, that you got that job. You know, not Jeremiah, but he called you for that job. What would you do when everyone hated you and wanted to kill you? I know what you would do. You would say, I think I'll quit. <laughs> you know, I'll find another job. I hear Burger King is hiring. I'm out of here, right? I am so done with this. Well, I know you would do that because that's what I would want to do. But he doesn't get away. You remember Jonah tried to quit? No, that doesn't work either, does it? You can't even run away from God. And Jeremiah knows it. He knows he cannot not do what he's supposed to do. Look look at the text with me. Will you find verse 9? Look in there. If I say, hypothetically, if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. You know, this is it. He stomped his feet. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to say that I'm not going to preach any more for you, God. I'm not going to speak any more in your name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in. It's like it's bursting forth. He's struggling. Can you imagine? He's struggling not to say what God has put in his heart to say. And he's just struggling so hard, but it's just like burning inside. And if he doesn't say it, it's going to consume him. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And it comes out. And he says it. You can't even quit this job. People hate you. They want to kill you. It's physically exhausting. You know, to anyone who thinks that following God is the secret to health and prosperity and a life of ease and comfort, I want to say to you, are you crazy? Have you ever read the Bible? I mean, no, this is not the story of the people of God. That, that, oh, life is all sunshine and rainbows and puppy dogs. and It's not. I mean, it can be. Sometimes it is. But it's no guarantee what the TV preacher, your best life now. Well, maybe, but not in the way you thought. It's not all ease. And if anyone thinks that following God is a secret to financial success or relational harmony or immunity to physical disease, well, I just say to you, read the text. That's not the experience of the people of God. 
But neither is following God a, a, a certainty of failure. In fact, quite the opposite. It is a certainty that you are going to be on the winning side. Following the Lord is certainty that you have sided with the winner. It doesn't mean that there's not a lot of difficulty in between the decision and the finality. You're going to win. You're going to be on the winning side. But there might be hardship along the way. Look what Jeremiah finally says, verse 11. He's whined, he's cried, he's complained. Everyone hates me, they want to kill me. You tricked me, God. You got me into this job. I didn't even want to be in it in the first place. And here I am, and now, you know, my life has fallen apart. And it's all going, you know, to heck in a handbasket. I almost said the other word. You know, it's all going to be that really... I grew up in a really rough family. Anyway, you're going to... This has been the way it is. Verse 11. But the Lord is with me. But the Lord is with me. But the Lord is with me. Whatever difficulty, whatever struggle, whatever pain he has to face, he realizes the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. And you don't want to mess with God. <laughs> you know, he, you might get by me a little bit, but in the end, the Lord is going to repay. He's going to set all things right. He knows being denounced isn't the end. The Lord is with me. God is not someone to have on your side. He is the one to have on your side. Everyone else pales in comparison. You see, Jeremiah is not just whining. He's really speaking the truth. He's had a tough way to go. And it's not over. Read the rest of the book. He has some really tough days ahead of him. He's not just whining. He's speaking righteousness into a culture that is determined to go against God. This isn't just like some minor thing. It's like Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaking against Nazis and finding himself hanging by a rope just days before his camp is liberated. This is facing martyrdom and doing it with um, with the certainty that there is there's no other alternative. Now I know we like to think that we have it tough, you know. We 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 do. We we like to think that it's rough here. You know, we might get targeted by the Internal Revenue Service. I mean, it's happened, right? There might be some uh, there might be some persecution where you know we don't actually get a position or a job or you know the, you know there might be some hardship that we we haven't faced the sort of thing Jeremiah's faced we haven't faced the sort of thing that 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 Bonhoeffer faced we may somewhere down the road that sort of thing might come around again but we have yet to do that but we do face difficulty we do face hardship and when we face the very worst that we could possibly face, we'd have to be like Jeremiah. But the Lord is with me. He's on my side. So I don't know what it is for you today. Where it is that you find yourself, whatever seems overwhelming, about to overtake you, whatever it is that makes you want to say to God, okay, enough already. Okay, say that. Say it. But then say the very next thing too. But the Lord is with me. As a dread warrior, the Lord is with me. And Martin Luther, the, the 16th century German monk and reformer, he really
really, um, he really faced a hardship in, in speaking out against the church and saying that there were some things that the church was doing that were just plain wrong. They were, they were a violation of the scriptures. They were not historic Christianity. The, the church had been hijacked. And he spoke out against it. The Pope excommunicated him almost immediately. And there was a, there was a bounty on Luther's head. There was an, an attempt to capture him, to bring him to Rome, to try him as a heretic and burn him at the stake. This is exactly what they wanted to do to him. And he knew it. And there were so many people who were saying all sorts of things about him that were just violent and vicious and cruel. And it really got him down. I mean, he got, he got physically depressed. You know, he was, he was saddened by it. He couldn't eat. He had this very difficult time. But he was married. He had gotten married in the ter- time of, uh, uh, of this Reformation movement. And his wife, Kate, was a former nun and a very, um, a very brilliant woman. One day, um, after putting up with his sulking around the house for, for many weeks, um, he went off to the university and he comes home and, and he finds Kate dressed in her, her funeral attire. She is in complete black. She's got black over the, the shades of the windows. She's got, you know, everything is blackened out. She looks like she's ready to go out the door to the funeral. And, and Luther walks in and he says to her, Kate, who died? She said, why God, of course. He looked at her like she must be mad. He says, who died? She says, God died. He said, you silly woman, God could not die. I mean, that's, that's absurd. God could never die. God was at the beginning before all things began. He'll be at the end when all things are done. God is, is never going to die. And she looks at him and says, then why do you act like he has? There's this... Um, Old Gaither hymn. I'm not much into Gaither hymns. I'm much more of a, a more traditionalist, old style guy. But there is this one that goes, Because he lives, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds my future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.